Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. As we get started here, I wanted to just take the time to thank our producers of OnScript, Jason Stark and Taylor Tursik. They're doing a fantastic job. They've taken over from Ed, who is retiring from OnScript blissfully on some island somewhere, I'm sure, at this point. Uh, also, if you would like to give us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be really helpful to us, and we'd appreciate that, um, or wherever you listen. And if giving a review on a podcast app is not your thing, um, I googled how to do, give effective feedback. And this, I guess this would apply even if you're giving it on one of those platforms, but also maybe just verbally, if you ever see one of us, uh, they have examples of what counts as effective feedback. So here's an example. I think you did a great job when you ran the all-hands meeting. It showed that you are capable of getting people to work together and communicate effectively. I admire your communication skills. So if you run into one of us or one of the producers at an event somewhere, um, apparently we'd appreciate hearing that. Uh, So that's something you could say uh, to one of us or to an interviewee on on the show to give them effective feedback. All right. I hope you enjoy this episode. We've got a good one here for you. And as always, if you would like to support the podcast, you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate. But mostly we're just glad you're listening. So thanks so much and enjoy this episode. Welcome back, OnScript listeners. This is Aaron Heim coming to you from Wycliffe Hall at the University of Oxford. And I'm joined today by Dr. Karen Reeder to talk about her newest book, The Samaritan Woman's Story. In most churches, the Samaritan woman has a bad reputation. She's a sinner, an adulteress, maybe even a prostitute. But Karen Reeder is here to tell us why that perception probably says more about us as interpreters than it does about John 4. Karen, welcome to OnScript. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm glad to have this conversation with you. Oh, me too. I've been looking forward to this one. (laughs) Um, To say a bit more about who Karen is, Dr. Karen Reeder is professor of New Testament and co-coordinator of gender studies at Westmont College. She earned a BA from Augustana College, an MA in biblical studies from Wheaton College, and an MPhil in Old Testament and PhD in New Testament, an MPhil in Old Testament, and a PhD in New Testament from the University of Cambridge because she's an overachiever. Karen Reeder has been at Westmont since 2007, Mm. and her research interests include the household, gender, and violence in the Bible and biblical worlds. And her recent research addresses women, children, and warfare in the Gospel of Luke and the interpretation of the story of the Samaritan woman in the context of women's lives in the church, which is what we'll be talking about today. Now, Karen, you've been on OnScript before, mm-hmm. and we've somehow convinced you to come back again. Um, can, can you tell us what you've been up to since you were first on in 2017? Yeah, so I remember that interview was about my first book, which was about um, the laws in Deuteronomy that tell you to stone a family member. All was a great time. And then how do we interpret those, right? So how did later communities interpret them and what do we do with them today? Um, At that time, I was also working on my second book, which was um, about the imagery of women in the Gospel of Luke and its connection with both peace and war and the destructive violence of war. And then how do we understand that within the ancient context? As I was finishing up that book, that um, that was the fall when the Me Too movement started. And the Me Too movement with widespread allegations of sexual violence and rape and assault and harassment, it was shocking to hear. I I think it was also making obvious what a lot of people already knew. Um, but it was also shocking to hear just how extensive the reports were and the extent to which the lives of women and some men also have been really disrupted by these experiences. And slowly that started spilling over into Christianity and women and some men in churches were telling their own stories of harassment and assault and abuse. And I tell you, Aaron, 
in the spring of 2018 through 2019, I just found myself getting angrier and angrier at what these people were telling us that their experiences had been. I was angry on their behalf for the abuse that they had suffered. I was also angry at the church for being a space in which this kind of experience can happen. Um, and also angry that the church wasn't taking a stronger stand against assault and harassment. Um, there was often this move to protect the institution at the expense of the victims and survivors. And yeah, so my research for this book, The Samaritan Woman's Story, really is an expression of my anger and my desire to contribute something to a solution towards mm. this problem. Yeah, yeah, I remember sitting next to you or Mm-hmm. At maybe at the same table as you at an IBR breakfast, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, probably in 2018. And I still remember you saying, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> yes. And I just I love that, like that, what are we going to do about this has become this book? Because mm-hmm. um, it's such a productive use of that, what can be, I think, a, a pretty crippling, yeah. um, just sense of, I mean, the, the enormity of the of the problem in the church is I mean, I find it crippling, so mm-hmm, I'm glad mm-hmm. to see someone who's able to um, who's able to speak into the conversation and use your use your training as a biblical mm-hmm, scholar mm-hmm. to to contribute a different angle than than one we've seen um, yeah. from you know practical theologians yeah. and people yeah. who are writing in different spaces. Yeah. So the issue behind this book is the pernicious culture, really within the mm-hmm. church, that has covered up abuse and enabled abusers. Uh, That's the thread that kind of runs through it. What does that have to do with the Samaritan woman in John 4? Yeah, as you said, as a biblical scholar, I really struggled for a long time to think, what can I actually do in this situation? I'm not a counselor. I'm not a pastor. I'm just a biblical scholar. So where, where is a way that I can contribute? But Slowly, as I thought more and more about the problem, um, I started connecting the way that women are perceived in the church and therefore the way they're treated in churches today with the way that we interpret stories about women in the Bible. I think an experience maybe a lot of people have had is we only hear women's stories in the Bible at Christmas and Mother's Day and the rest of the year, it's like they don't exist. (laughs) Or if we do hear stories about women in the Bible at other times in the year, then it's often really focused on negative representations of women. So women as seducers, women as dangers to the faithful men around them. Um, You think about all of the stories of women in the Gospels, and somehow they almost always turn out to be prostitutes. So Mary Magdalene, um, the woman who anoints Jesus in Luke 7, it's just quite alarming how many prostitutes there were apparently in Jesus' Galilee. Um, And that message about women, when it's so pervasive, when so many biblical women turn into, their stories turn into stories about sex, um, we start making assumptions about women that women in the Bible are only important with respect to their sexuality. And maybe that's also true of the women in our churches. And so as a biblical scholar, I really wanted to challenge that connection and say, maybe some of the ways we've been interpreting these stories actually are more about us, as you said earlier, (laughs) um, and not about what the stories are actually telling us. Do you think it's fair to say, even when they're, I mean, because I, I can just hear people saying, well, they're not always negative. We say mm-hmm. plenty of positive things about women. But even when we talk about women in the Bible in positive ways, they're still very gendered. They're still very mm-hmm. narrow in their positive framing, equally narrow as, as their gender, you know, the negative mm-hmm. stereotyping. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. you'd want to say that both of those things are problematic. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I think um, when we really look seriously at the stories about women in the Bible, we can see that they're functioning in ways that might surprise us. They don't always fit our stereotypes about women staying in the home and being wise wives and good mothers. Um, We see women doing actually quite shocking things in biblical narratives and being praised for it, right? These are contributions they're making to the story of God's people in the world. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So this book is in large part about how the church has misread the story of the Samaritan woman in John 4. So I thought maybe it'd be helpful to give us your own reading of the Samaritan mm-hmm. woman in John four, what, what, how are we supposed to understand this mm-hmm. text? Yeah. So I think the first thing to notice, and this actually shocks people when I've talked about this story at church, I often get the question, but doesn't Jesus tell her to go and sin no more? And actually he doesn't tell her that at all. <laughs> that comes from another story in John's gospel. Um, and it's not part of John four in all of John. It might not even be part of John. Exactly. Yes. Because it comes in a story. <laughs> Sorry, that is, that. Yes. <laughs> a very good point. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That story of the woman caught know, in adultery. Turned, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yet another, it's yet another case where we've like made mm-hmm. someone a whore. Was, yes. Yeah. It's yes. conflating women. They're interchangeable. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, exactly. This is why we need to talk more about these women. Uh, Yeah, so in the entirety of the story of the Samaritan woman, the word sin is never mentioned. And that's actually really important to notice because Jesus in John's gospel is not afraid of accusing people of sin. He does it all the time. (laughs) So the fact that there's no mention of sin or forgiveness in John 4 That should make us think, maybe we are importing something into this story that doesn't belong there. And if you take sin out, then suddenly you can see the story, I think, much more clearly. So why does the woman go to the well in the middle of the day all by herself without all the other women in the village? That's often been interpreted as, well, she's a social outcast. Her neighbors don't like her. She wants to go alone. So she avoids gossip. There's nothing about that in this story. Um, And in fact, what we know of women going to get water at wells in the ancient world, when you need water, you go to the well. You don't have to go at a certain time or only go with other people in the company of others. So it's not strange or wrong or morally perilous for her to be going to the well alone. She meets Jesus at the well. She has the longest conversation with Jesus in the Gospel of John, which is really important to notice. And Jesus often starts a conversation with someone in John, but then it turns into a sermon and the other person just sort of disappears. But this woman stays involved through the whole conversation and she asks relevant questions. She's listening. She's trying to figure out what Jesus is talking about. She's the one who introduces the serious issue of Where do you worship God? Do you worship in Jerusalem, where the Jewish temple is, or in Samaria, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritan temple was? That was the key issue of the difference between the Jews and Samaritans in the first century. And really, that question is about who are the people of God? (laughs) Are the Jews the people of God, or are the Samaritans the people of God? And her question, therefore, allows Jesus to make this grand theological statement that, well, actually, Anyone can be the people of God. And suddenly the kingdom is open to all, to Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles even. And it's the woman's participation in the conversation with Jesus that makes that message apparent. Then at the end of the story, when she has realized who she's talking to at her village well, she runs back to the village and tells everyone, hey, I think I just met the Messiah. I'm pretty sure he's sitting at our well. Come and meet him. The villagers come out to meet Jesus and they believe that the woman has spoken the truth. And they say, we believed first because of your word. And now we believe because of his word. So the word of the woman and the word of Jesus are actually paralleled in John 4, which is quite remarkable. And we see in between the woman leaving the well and the villagers coming to the well, Jesus is talking to his disciples And they're a little confused. Why are you talking to a Samaritan woman? And he says, hey, look, guys, (laughs) other people have been sowing the word and now you're ready to enter into the harvest. And here comes the woman bringing a whole harvest with her, right? So I think that analogy that Jesus makes is saying, the woman and I have been working here while you've been off buying food in the village. And now we get to harvest the fruit of our labors of sowing the word of God, right? So I think that this woman is 
first of all, the first evangelist in John's gospel. And then second, I would say she's presented as the ideal disciple of Jesus, someone who listens, who asks questions, who seeks understanding, and then witnesses to others about the truth she's realized. In that respect, I'd see her as a strong contrast with Nicodemus a chapter earlier. Who incidentally, as I always point out to my students, comes at night. Yes, Like John exactly. also has this night day <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. I so appreciated just the the clarity in which you you break down her function as an ideal mm-hmm. disciple because mm-hmm. it's it's a it, those are all themes that you can trace through the rest of John's gospel really mm-hmm. and and I find that really I mean it's helpful it's helpful in teaching mm-hmm. if you all are teaching classes on John this is a book to add to your reading list for sure it's like it's it's really really helpful both in terms of how it addresses contemporary issues but also just like what it means to read scripture well mm-hmm. um, which I know listeners uh, definitely care about. Yeah, every every term I teach John, and I teach John every year, <laughs> um, I always challenge them. If you can find me any ancient source where, where you can show me that there's some indication that drawing well or drawing water at a well at noon is Im- a sign of a, someone's immorality, please come and bring it to me and I will, you know, I don't, we can't give extra credit, but something like that. Like I will, you know, give you a a treat or a prize or something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. because I just, I've looked for it. Mm -hmm, I've had mm -hmm. students looking for it now every every year that I've taught Mm -hmm, John mm -hmm. and I've never had a student produce anything that would count as evidence for this, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's repeated and almost every John commentary that you'll pick up. So it's, it's um it's interesting. It's mm-hmm. one of these like urban legends mm-hmm. that somehow if enough experts say it, it must be true. That's right. Uh, anyway, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. So having start or um, set the scene for how we should be reading John four, what what's at stake then for contemporary women when we read John four the wrong way? So there is a long history of reading John 4 the wrong way, I would argue, um, going all the way back to our earliest recorded interpretation, which comes from Tertullian in the late second, early third century. And the way that, so you see this in sermons and commentaries on John from the third century to the 21st century, that the lessons that are drawn from this story tell women that they are dangerous to men. <laughs> Right. Um, we see that very explicitly in a number of sermons and story or commentaries on this this text. There's a connection of women's identity with sexual sin in a number of commentaries and sermons on this. Dwight Moody, for instance, the great evangelist in North America, he used the story to preach to the prostitutes of Chicago in one of his missions and to tell them that, you know, like the Samaritan woman, you too can be saved from your sin. And But that message, it just, it misses what the story is actually about, of course. And it misses the fact that this woman is an ideal disciple and evangelist for Jesus' message. Um, so I find that to be quite limiting, first of all, because we're taking away the story of a woman who is the model disciple for women and men to follow, and someone who's a leader in her community, someone who speaks the word of God, um, who Jesus identifies as his colleague in ministry. And that means that women get limited from seeing themselves in a leadership role, right? They're told through this story, your only significance is your sexual and marital history. Your words don't matter. It's probably dangerous for you to be speaking. John Calvin makes that particular move with the Samaritan woman story, which is pretty shocking considering her word is highlighted so importantly at the end of the story. Yeah, I just find the traditional interpretation of John 4 to be both limiting and dangerous. Yeah. And we'll definitely, like, I have a whole mm-hmm. series of questions about mm-hmm. like the ways in which it's limiting and the ways mm-hmm. in which it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, let's maybe, let's mm-hmm. maybe jump into that, that line of questioning. 
I mean, you've said a bit about like the trends that we notice in interpretation, mm-hmm. but what trends do we notice like from Tertullian all the way through mm-hmm. John Piper? Mm-hmm. Like what, what yeah. do they all have in common? Yeah. So first of all, there is an overwhelming focus on the woman's marital history in John four as the lens to read the story through. So this story is about Jesus saving a woman from her sexual sin. And she has to recognize her sin and completely reform her life if she wants to be counted in the kingdom of God. Going along with that, we see a devaluing of her own spoken word and her participation in the story. So if you start from the perspective that she must be a sinner, then you start reading everything that she says to Jesus through that understanding. So she is rude to Jesus. She is foolish. She deliberately misunderstands him. She mocks him. Um, She cannot possibly be wise enough to understand what Jesus is talking about anyway. So the story really, even though it's the longest conversation in John's gospel, in interpretation, the woman gets silenced over and over again. And then, um, yeah, as I was saying with John Calvin, when he gets to the end of the story where the woman is speaking to her fellow villagers, her neighbors, he says, well, we might think that it was dangerous for her to tell anyone anything about Jesus because she didn't know enough and she didn't really understand what she was talking about. So she could have misled everybody. But really, she was just acting like a fire alarm to alert everyone to the fact that Jesus was there. So it's no different than a cow or a bell ringing. She's just the same as that. Um, So he's not only devaluing the woman's own words, but he's also dehumanizing her and turning her into just, you know, a symbol or a bell. (laughs) That's all. That's a pretty egregious example Mm -hmm. of... A number of pretty egregious examples. Can you give us like the most, I don't know, notable offenders within this tradition and maybe give another a few examples of things like what Calvin has said that appear not just in John Calvin's writing, but actually mm-hmm. starting all the way back, as you say, in Tertullian and then yeah, stretching yeah. forward. Yeah. So Tertullian refers to the woman twice. Once he calls her a uh, multiple adulterer because she'd been married so many times. Tertullian is in this particular work. He's arguing that a Christian can only be married once ever. And you're for the rest of your life, you are married to your first spouse. And so he sees even if she got remarried legally, she's still morally at fault for having multiple husbands. And then in another writing, he calls her a prostitute because once you've had so many husbands, clearly you might as well just be counted as a prostitute. Tertullian's shock there is that Jesus even spoke to a woman like this. So how can we understand it? And he sort of, he says, well, it was okay because she wasn't a Christian yet. (laughs) If she had still been living in this way after she became a Christian, then we would really have a problem on our hands. But it's okay because she wasn't a Christian yet. So her marital history, we can excuse it in her ignorance. Yeah, John Chrysostom is an interesting one. He actually, he draws attention to the woman's conversation with Jesus and her wisdom and the fact that she preaches to her neighbors, but he still calls her an adulteress, right? And so he's still accusing her of sexual sin. And actually, if you look at the rest of the things that John Chrysostom says about women in John's gospel, the only reason he likes the Samaritan woman is because she's not Jewish. So he was really negative on all of the Jewish women in John's gospel because of his own anti-Semitism. And so the Samaritan woman can only be semi-praised because she was Samaritan and not Jewish. <laughs> I mean, speaking of the the Roman context of those, I mean, you you have like a lengthy section and pretty mm-hmm. much every, mm-hmm. I mean, every chapter, you're, you're really careful to put the interpreters Mm -hmm. in their context. Why was that an important um, piece of this project? Mm -hmm. And then we'll go back to religious examples. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that I wanted to do with not just tracing the history of interpretation of the woman, but also showing how interpreters approach to the Samaritan woman reflects their approach to women in general. So for Tertullian, for instance, I mean, he did 
praise women and give women a place in the church of service and of contributions towards the kingdom of God. But he also said women are the daughters of Eve and therefore brought death and sin into the world and they're the devil's doorway and, you know, all of those fun things. (laughs) And, And I think that we see his interpretation of the Samaritan woman is part of a larger understanding of the dangers of women um, to men because sex is dangerous for Tertullian. And for most of the early church, there's a real suspicion of sexuality and women clearly are temptresses who are going to lead the faithful man away from God through sex. Could you, could you add a little bit about mm-hmm. your, your masculinity thing? Um, yes. Roman masculinity. Cause that seems to be kind of an important mm-hmm. component of this. And I think there's a, there's, it's quite foreign to maybe how we think, maybe not how about how we think about masculinity, yeah, but yeah. Um, that, that was pretty, I think helpful in mm-hmm. framing mm-hmm. why he might hold those views. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So masculinity in the Roman world and certainly Tertullian reflects this. Um, One thing we have to think about is they didn't necessarily think in terms of a binary between male and female. There were certainly ways that male and female were conceived as opposites in Roman understanding, but masculinity is more of a sliding scale. You can be more or less masculine. Uh, To be more masculine means that you're more in control of yourself and others. So masculinity, to a certain extent, is an exercise of power. Um, And that meant, you know, being in charge of your household, being in charge of enslaved people, um, maybe holding a government position, being wealthy was an important part of masculinity. But it also meant being in control of your emotions and the way that you walked and the way that you sort of spoke publicly in ways that expressed your own personal self-control and power and status. And it meant, therefore, also being in control of your own sexuality. But sex is dangerous then because it's a loss of control in the act of intercourse. And so for Tertullian, um, like a lot of Stoic thinkers as well, um, oh, is that okay? (laughs) Can can a man have sex and still be manly? (laughs) Um, There was a tension there. But that tension also existed in a reality in which freeborn Roman men had quite a lot of sexual freedom and freedom over their own households. Um, That included their wives and enslaved women and men in their household. Also, the use of prostitutes who were usually enslaved as well. Yeah, so it's just it's an interesting tension there between sexual freedom and also expressing your personal masculinity, your control over yourself in terms of sex. So women for Tertullian and other Christians at the time, they could be more masculine, right? By being in control of themselves, um, exercising control over their emotions and over their sexuality as well. So not having sex became masculine (laughs) to a certain extent the best way that a woman could exercise masculinity was by getting killed. So being martyred for her faith, um, that was a great expression of a woman's masculinity. And Tertullian praises women martyrs for their manliness, for their courage. And yeah, so I think we definitely see that as well in the background of the Samaritan woman's story for Tertullian that, you know, so many husbands, complete lack of control. What a woman, (laughs) right? In terms of being not a man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So back to Mm -hmm. egregious examples, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's the early church. Um, How about the, I mean, you kind of jumped then to the reformation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You've talked about Calvin, Mm -hmm. other, other notable Protestants in this egregious category, or, or maybe that, you know, maybe there's some bright spots too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There actually, there are starting to be some bright spots with the reformation because one of the things we find with Um, in the Reformation time period is because it was easier to get published, women start getting things published too, which, wow, yay. Um, Yeah, it's quite amazing. Women have things to say, even about the Bible. (laughs) And, And we do find in this period that a number of women are looking at the Samaritan woman's story and saying, wait a minute, she spoke. She 
told her people about Jesus. She recognized that worship should happen in spirit and truth and not through, say, the liturgies of the Catholic Church. (laughs) So that was a connection for women in the Reformation that they were really interested in and wanted to explore. So Argula von Grumbach, um, she used the Samaritan woman as an example that taught her that she could also engage in theological conversations. Another woman named Marie Dentier, she was in Geneva, and she was actually, she went out in the streets preaching (laughs) about Jesus, right? Uh, John Calvin, in his letters, he mentions her, and he mentions running into her while she was out preaching in the streets, and oh my goodness, what is she doing? But at the same time, she's actually, she's doing it despite Calvin's disapproval. And uh, she is someone who really drew that parallel between the Samaritan woman and her message about worship and the message of the Reformation. And I think that Marie, she also sees the Samaritan woman as an example for her own ministry. So the Samaritan woman preached, Marie also preaches, and she has biblical justification for that. But as we sort of work our way forward, so if we take a break in the 19th century, right? Um, This was a time when following the Industrial Revolution, there were shifts in the way that families functioned. And that meant shifts in the ways that women operated in the world as well. So we have through the Victorian period, this development of the idea of women as the angels of the home. And the women that we're talking about here, they are privileged women. They're wealthy women who whose husbands go out to work in the world. And these women were taking care of the home and making it a moral refuge for the man. But that gave them a sort of spiritual authority in the household. And so we find through the 1900s, the sorry, the 1800s, 19th century, I always confuse those. (laughs) Um, Through the 1800s, we find a lot of women getting really involved in writing on biblical texts, on theological or spiritual themes. They're writing for other women, and they're usually writing about the women in scripture. So that was seen as safe for women to do. They can handle that. And so we find a lot of interpretations of the Samaritan woman's story and these women's works. And some of them still see her like in the Reformation as a preacher and a theologian and someone who's a model for women's leadership. Uh, One of my favorites was a woman named Harriet Livermore who said, look at the Samaritan woman. She went out and preached in the streets. If a woman did that today, she'd be carted off to the insane asylum, (laughs) But, but do it anyway, because that's the model we have in the Bible. But then you also have women, like um, one I talk about in the book, Clara Balfour, she sees the Samaritan woman as someone who's intelligent, who's seeking understanding, but she's also really worried about the woman's sexual sin. And so there's this attempt to say, well, she had to recognize her sin and confess it um, in order to be a spiritual leader for her own household. There was a danger here that if women slipped into sexual sin, then they would lose that spiritual authority over their households. And so Clara Balfour is really emphasizing that in her interpretation of the Samaritan woman and using it as a message for the other wealthy, privileged women in her audience to go out and help their sisters who were less well-informed and were giving into immorality. Yeah. And then we go straight from Clara Balfour to Dwight Moody, who is, like I said earlier, using the Samaritan woman's story to preach repentance to the prostitutes of Chicago. <laughs> right. Let's um, let's let's pause for maybe a minute before we jump into the, the contemporary reception mm. of of the Samaritan woman, because there's some um, maybe juicy examples there too. <laughs> and let's do a speed round. Are you ready for a speed round? Okay. The the infamous on script speed round. I'm ready. I confess I am not as I'm not as as good at these because I always want to talk about what people say. <laughs> so it's maybe less of a speed round and more questions that are not related to other parts of the interview, but uh, make you sound, you know, like the interesting human that you are. So <laughs> it's fun to ask them. Okay, so first question: What's something you find embarrassing? <laughs> <laughs> exactly that when you 
can't think of anything <laughs> smart and fun and interesting to say. <laughs> yeah. Standing in front of the classroom oh. and suddenly there's just nothing coming out and my mind goes completely blank and... I just feel oh, like such an idiot. I, like you all are paying how much money to be here and I have nothing for you. <laughs> oh, COVID brain has mm, made that like mm-hmm. such a it's not it's not like a fear I dream about anymore. It like happens to me yes. and just oh, it's so unfortunate. <laughs> it's getting better, but it was so unfortunate at the beginning. Oh, anyway. Okay. Um give me a book or an author outside of biblical studies and theology that you think is worth reading. Ooh. Lois McMaster Bouchold. So, mm, yes, <laughs> she's uh, yeah, okay. she's a fantasy author, um, and she also Ooh. also does sort of outer space space opera kind of things. Um, yeah, she's just a lot of fun. So I really enjoy her work, and I've just been listening to her series uh, Penrick and Desdemona on audiobook, and it's about a world in which. Ooh demons are present but they're not like bad christian demons or <laughs> some of them are helpful and do interesting things i don't know i just really like it oh that's cool okay i love a good audiobook yeah. too that's like my preferred way of non-biblical mm-hmm. studies theology reading reading is maybe a strong word <laughs> listening <laughs> <laughs> um what's a what's a trend in society that scares you oh gosh um the culture wars really scares mm. me because I think it makes people afraid of each other and too ready to judge other people um, without listening and learning who they actually are mm. on all the sides. Yeah. You walk up to the bartender and you order a what? Usually a beer, a nice brown ale. Yes. <laughs> oh, Karen, you are a woman after my own heart. <laughs> We should have beer next mm. time we're we're in the same space. Excellent. That, that, I like brown ale too. Um, and if your mother were to walk into your office right now, what would she say about it? Why do you have all those books on your desk? Are you actually reading them? <laughs> I think all of our mothers would mm-hmm. say that. Yeah. Like that's yeah. just that's just the common refrain, isn't it? <laughs> all right, back back to the the interview mm-hmm. proper. Um, in the second half of the book, you um, you want to make clear that, or the case that the church's portrayal of the Samaritan woman as an archetypal sinner and as a prostitute who misleads and destroys men has some real consequences for women in the church. So, where do you see this reception history um, intersecting with contemporary praxis in churches? Mm-hmm. Like, where do we, where do we most acutely feel this legacy of interpretation? So, one of the um, elements in that particular chapter, I do a pretty extensive analysis of John Piper's interpretation of the Samaritan woman in the context of what he has said about women and men and sexuality. That was maybe the hardest part of the book to write, actually, um, because it when you see these connections between the way someone is reading John 4 and the way that that person is talking about women. Um, it's just so deeply troubling to me. Yeah, it's, maybe it's helpful. I'll read a bit mm-hmm, of this. It mm-hmm. might be helpful to set the context yeah. for people. So John Piper's sermons on John 4 are, um, they're they are harsh in, in their rhetoric for mm-hmm. sure, but they're also pretty typical and, I've, mm-hmm. and clearly quite influential interpretations of this passage within with a North American evangelicalism. So Piper says this, he says in one sermon, he says, if people are spiritually asleep, you have to shock them, startle them, scandalize them. If you want them to hear what you say, Jesus was especially good at this. When he wants to teach us something about worship, he uses a whore. Mm -hmm. And then in another sermon, Piper says, Jesus knows there is something in her life that makes it painful for her to come to the place where all of the women gather and talk. So he means something like, you don't like to come here. You feel conspicuous, vulnerable. Perhaps you should bring your husband with you. He could stand with you and protect you, and you could be proud of him like an elder at the city gates. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear just your thoughts on Piper. But um, also, is he is he innovating the reception of this text in some way, or is his view 
more or less, um, you know, an extension of what we see in, say, Tertullian. And it's only really shocking because it's so out of step with the majority culture now. Mm. I think maybe a little bit of both in that respect. I think he's definitely in line with what earlier interpreters said, focusing on the woman as sexual sinner. I think he's maybe trying to push as well that she should have a male protector who will guard her and keep her from the gossip of her fellow townspeople, um, who will maybe keep her on the straight and narrow in terms of her own morality and spirituality, because that's very much part of his perspective on marriage in general, is that women need husbands to lead them, right? And to guard them and to be their protector. I think that's maybe a bit more blatant of a connection than we see in some earlier interpreters, although I think the trends are there earlier on as well. Like, I find that difficult to read, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for some listeners, that will be really difficult to hear. Mm -hmm. But um, so coming back to the earlier question, like, where do you see this sort of interpretation impacting how, you know, real women in our churches today are are treated? I suppose we're coming to the church, too. Mm -hmm portion of the book mm-hmm. also. Where mm-hmm. do you think this um, this kind of rhetoric um, intersects with church too? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to jump to something that happened in the spring of 2021. It was in Georgia in the United States. Um, there was a young man who felt that he had a sex addiction and the way to address his sex addiction was to go to massage parlors, which are sometimes associated with prostitution. Although I don't think that that was proven for any of the places that were targeted by this young man. Um, And he, he killed people there, right? He killed the workers there. There, Most of the people who were killed were Asian women, women of Asian descent, um, who were looking for work, right? (laughs) Who were trying to support themselves and were working at these massage parlors. Um, It came out afterwards. Actually, it was almost right away that it was um, indicated that he was an evangelical Christian. And he had been told that women are stumbling blocks, who cause men to fall into sin. And his response was to kill the stumbling blocks um, so that he would not fall into sin. That's just, it is so shocking to think about what messages was that young man getting in church. I am quite certain that he never heard a pastor say, you should hurt women to protect yourself from sexual sin, right? No pastor would say that. But what are the ways that our rhetoric about women, like in Piper's sermons, might be furthering that message, actually, in ways that we don't intend? I think that that stumbling block language is actually a really egregious example of this, that we hear that, my students still tell me they still hear this language used um, in dress codes or in sort of messages to women, um, even at Westmont, there's a first year retreat and the women students are, you know, given given warnings about this in the context of their first year experience. Um, but that message, if you go back and look at what it where it comes from in the Bible, it's not about women. It's actually it's your own eye or your own hand or your own foot. That's the stumbling block. So the message is control yourself, not controlling others. Right. And, whoa, but that would change the way that we think about sexual ethics today if we really focused on that. But to go back to this young man, um, yeah, I I am really concerned about the ways that we teach about women's stories in scripture, feed into narratives, um, stereotypical narratives about women in the churches. And that has consequences for the way that women are treated in the churches then. Um, there was one book that I read and really wrestled with in writing this um, was Ruth Everhart, The Me Too Reckoning, um, which is an excellent book. I highly recommend it. But she tells the story of a young woman who was actually raped in church during a Christmas Eve service. And Everhart asked this question, I wonder 
what messages that rapist had heard in church that made him see women as rapeable. That is just, it haunts me to this day. That question lingers in my mind. And I actually, my one of the things my editor made me do in the final edits here was take out some of the references to it. She said, it's too much. But I think that question is just, oh my goodness, what have we done to present women in this way in our churches, to make men see women primarily as sexual objects, as prizes even for a faithful man or as dangers to a faithful man? And how can we, how can we change that? How can we change that rhetoric about women? Yeah, so this sermon by Piper as well, one of the sermons by Piper, he actually interweaves his interpretation of the Samaritan woman with the story of a man who had gone into a gym and killed several women because they didn't go on dates with him. Like it wasn't even women that he had asked on dates, right? It's just killing women because he thinks he deserves women and women, he perceives women as a threat to his own, his own identity in some way. And I mean, of course, Piper is saying that is wrong. You don't do that. Um, But I think the way that he's connecting it with the Samaritan woman's story is actually implicitly furthering this connection between women as sexual sinners or sexual dangers and violence against women. If I can jump back a little bit, back to the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas actually does this quite explicitly. He says the Samaritan woman was such a vile sinner, she should have been taken out in the road and stoned. Yeah, so not maybe a new interpretation, but I think, you know, troubling in any age. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. What about... I mean, you, you've really qu- clearly illustrated the connection between the, the overemphasis of her sexuality, the Samaritan woman's mm-hmm, sexuality mm-hmm. in John 4, and the over-sexualization of women in the church. But um, you point out that Piper's um, interpretation also silences this woman mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Who, who is speaking. Mm-hmm. So what impact, what impact does our inattention to the, you know, the other aspects of John 4 have for women in our churches, and again, you frame this in, um, especially within the church two mm-hmm. movement. What what links do you see there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I agree with those early reformers, <laughs> women reformers, who said actually the Samaritan woman is a preacher, and John's gospel presents her as a preacher, and her word is valuable. Her word is part of the reason that her neighbors believe in Jesus. She's an evangelist. And that's not accidental, right? (laughs) That is, Jesus chose to have this conversation with the woman. Jesus identifies her in his analogy to the disciples as someone who's sowing the word. Um, And that's pretty much of a piece with John's gospel. We see a number of um, women taking really important roles in John's gospel. Mary, the mother of Jesus, starts his whole public ministry. Martha, in the middle, gives this great declaration of faith. Mary Magdalene is the apostle to the apostles who tells them about the resurrection at the end. If we see the Samaritan woman as a preacher, gosh, that's a different message for women in the church today to hear. If we're seeing her as the ideal disciple, then that makes her story important, not just for women, but also for men. Men can also learn from this and follow her example of engaging in theological debate, of listening, of learning, of then witnessing to the truth that you realize. Um, But I definitely think it's important to recognize that her word, her spoken word matters in this story. And the tendency to silence the woman in order to silence women in churches, right? To limit women's influence or voice in churches. um, That's a consistent part of the history of interpretation. But it's not part of the story in John. (laughs) The woman is not silenced in John. And what if we listen to that and see women as leaders in our own churches? Yeah. And I, and I think especially for, for women who are victims and survivors of abuse, mm-hmm. the idea that a woman is worth listening to mm-hmm. um, in John 4 is a pretty important, th- I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty different thing to point yeah. out than this woman is a sinner and mm-hmm. she, you know, 
probably enticed men yeah. and you yeah. all do that. I mean, yeah, yeah just um, there's something really empowering about mm-hmm. claiming her voice back, mm-hmm. not just, I mean, as, as a, as a disciple, but also as a, just as a woman with a voice mm-hmm. and in the context of church too, a woman with a voice is a big deal. Yeah, definitely. Um, we're coming to the end of our, our time that, that Karen has so graciously set aside for us in a very busy week. <laughs> so I just want to, um, I want to conclude our time with the, the question that I like to ask um, all the guests that I, that I interview. So Karen, what is your hope for this book? I, a few things, honestly, I think one thing is I want people to recognize the Samaritan woman as a preacher. I love this story so much. It has been so important for me in my own spiritual development, in my own faith, and in my own scholarship. And I want people to be able to recognize just how awesome the Samaritan woman is (laughs) and how incredible it is to have her as a primary character in John's gospel, highlighted as someone who understands Jesus and preaches Jesus to her neighbors. That's just, that's incredible. And we should recognize and celebrate the Samaritan woman for that. I also hope that as readers see how, how, as I argue, the church has misinterpreted this story, they might start thinking about other stories of women in the Bible and questioning the ways that they've been commonly represented. I think just go back and reread some of those stories, right? And see, well, is the woman who anoints Jesus' feet and weeps over him in Luke 7, is she actually a prostitute? She's not described that way. She's a sinner. And there are lots of ways for people to sin. And there's no reason to say that she must be a prostitute, that that's the only way a woman could sin in Jesus' world. Definitely not. So what if we've gotten that wrong? And what if there's something else we need to learn from her story? Yeah. So that's another goal of mine through this project. And then third, I really hope that people will use it and take it to heart in thinking about the ways that we represent women and women's stories in our churches. Because if we don't change the way that we talk about women and the examples we highlight and the stories we tell, then we're going to be stuck in this church two moment for a lot longer. And we need to not be there, right? We need to, we need to recognize the ways that we have sinned against women, repent and change our churches to be places of safety for all women and men. Thanks so much. And friends, that's all the time we have for today. We've been speaking with Dr. Karen Reeder about her newest book, The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Church 2, which was published by IVP. Um, Folks, this is a book that you're going to want to pick up and read for yourself. And as I said before, if you're teaching, that you should assign this to your students and add it to your reading lists. Um, Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Erin. This has been great. Yeah. And thanks to all of you for joining us. We'll see you next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.